Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship to help you harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. My guest today, Daniel Priestley, is the founder of Dent Global and ScoreApp. He's a four-time best-selling author and a leading authority in scaling businesses. His reputation and extensive experience with his own companies have seen him advising for Inc. 500 leaders and unicorn entrepreneurs. I love that expression, unicorn. We'll get into that. Also led him to receive lots of media coverage as a key person of influence, a topic that Daniel is very well versed in and that we'll dive into a bit later. And starting with nothing, Daniel has built valuable and scalable business in Australia, UK, US, Canada, and Singapore. And his mission is to develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make a positive impact in the world. Put simply, Daniel is a thoroughbred entrepreneur and has a lot of business and life wisdom from firsthand experience. So let's dive in. I'm tired of doing the intro. Let this guy talk a little bit. Dan, welcome to the show. Adam, I love that intro. Thank you so much. That, that made me feel People good. People like it. People like it. <laughs> I'm actually like feeling, I'm feeling like I've got to say something really wise now. Yeah, well, we'll see about that in a minute here. And I want to start off here where I read somewhere in your journey uh, that your journey actually started out with the classic quote, you know, the boss told me something I didn't like story. And that's relatable. I'd love if you could share a little bit on uh, the origin of Daniel Priestley. Well, I had a great experience. <laughs> Age 19, I drop out of university, not knowing what I'm going to do. I get roped into a startup and I'm sitting around a kitchen table, no business name, no bank account, uh, basically an entrepreneur with an idea. Um, so I join a startup and over the next two years, it goes from zero to six million a year in revenue and about a, a 50, 60 person team in inner city London, uh, inner city Melbourne offices. Um, and uh, I was very much the right-hand assistant to uh, the entrepreneur, and it meant I got thrown into all sorts of cool situations and hiring and firing and marketing and selling and all that sort of stuff um, in that journey. But there came this point where I said um, that I wanted shares in the company, and I, I walked the boss to the car, and we uh, we got talking on the way, and I didn't pick mm -hmm. my didn't pick my timing very well, but I basically said, "Hey, look, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like some." I'd like some shares in the company and uh, he kind of stopped and he just kind of looked a bit cross and he said, listen, if you want shares in a company, go start your own company. And I was like, whoa, okay. Like uh, not what I was expecting. So, But pause, pause on that for a moment there. Not what you were expecting and you talked about timing. You know, when you look back on that moment, we all have those moments in life, Dan, right? We're like, shit, I, I bombed the timing on that one. Um, going back, if you want to hit the rewind button, what would you have done differently from a timing perspective? When would you have had uh, that conversation? Well, from a Before look, you got to the car, still in the office, now when you're uh, trying to get the hell home? Two years earlier right? would have been the time to have that conversation. Um, but, you know, re realistically, 
Here, here's the funny thing. At age 21, um, what I didn't realize is that a generalist is very valuable for the first 12 months or the first you know, small dynamic team of less than 10 people. Uh, being a Swiss army knife, being a generalist, being a helper was a very valuable role and a very special role. But the truth was is that John had actually outgrown me and he was struggling to find a role for me at that time anyway. Uh, what happens typically with any company is that you go from generalist to specialists. You go from you know, 10 people who are covering all bases to uh, 50 people who each have a very specialized role. They've got a background, they've got an education, they've got training, they've got experience. And me personally at that particular moment, you know, I was a bit, um, you know, I was a bit all over the place and I was young and what I should have probably- Yeah, I should have probably seen that, um, uh, that, that uh, in hindsight, I should have probably seen that I should have gone in with an actual proposal of what I will deliver uh, in exchange for shares. Um, and what I will sacrifice in exchange for shares. And maybe, you know, maybe I could have done it. I probably had a little bit of entitlement in my voice, uh, as in like, I've come with you this far. Uh, can I get shares in the company in recognition of what I've already mm. done historically? And what I should have probably done is said, hey, I think I can deliver it, you know, something big in the future. If I do that, can I have some shares? And that would have been a different conversation. Interesting. And it's always good to go back and the woulda, shoulda, coulda, but we can't hit that rewind button. We can't replay things. Um, I want to shift gears in a little bit. I want to talk about a book that you wrote called How to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids, Raising Confident, Resourceful, and Resilient Children Who Are Ready to Succeed in Life. And to my knowledge, there was no such book uh, that your parents read when they raised you. <laughs> and yet you still built this multi-million dollar business at the age of 25. Like if you kind of want to go back, um, was, I mean, what, what did your parents do for a living? Because I, I, let me, let me, let me kind of, both of my parents are New York City Board of Education teachers. My yeah. brother is in education. Somehow I grew up to be an entrepreneur. So I always look back and I'm like, where the hell did that come from? Let's let's hit the rewind button a little Ooh. bit and, and, and where did that come from? Well, my, da bug. my dad's a teacher. Maybe that's the secret. Uh, mm. I, I, uh, my, dad, my dad was a school teacher as I was going through high school and, and primary school. I went to five primary schools because I was basically going to school where he was teaching and they were moving him right. around a lot. Um, my mum, uh, while I was growing up, was a journalist and then a local politician. Um, so not really an entrepreneurial background per se. Dad used to love doing brochures and um, marketing materials. He had a little sideline hustle, which was called desktop publishing, um, which he uh, he put together. And he also did a little uh, little newspaper magazine that he uh, he would publish from time to time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think there were, you know, my earliest memory as an entrepreneur is there was a house fire, little little tiny kitchen mm. fire, uh, a whole bunch of stuff got um, damaged. I was 10 years old and they were about to throw it all out. And I said, can I sell it? And I, can I, can I clean it? Can I sell it? And basically at age 10, I cleaned up all this stuff uh, with methylated spirits and laid it out on these tables. And I actually promoted my first garage sale. I went down to the local um, store and put a poster in the window and I put some posters on the light posts. Uh, and, um, and basically I ran my own garage sale. I, I had the weird idea to put a toaster Crazy. And, and, to, and to create toast and sell people toast when they were there at my um, garage sale as well. Um, and that was incredible. I made $300, which in 1991, 92 was enough a to get a lot of money. Sega Master System. It was a it was a BMX Sega. bike. Yeah. I, but a BMX that. BMX bike. I was I was pretty bling bling. 
that, that I mean, was there? I mean, was there was there a role model? Was there someone in the community? Was there a teacher that you kind of looked looked at? Was there a local business person? It was you just, just kind of did it. You had the bug. I just had the bug. I, it was just this weird thing that um, around that time I had it in my head that rather than throwing this stuff in the bin, we should clean it and sell it. Um, and mm. around that same time, I forget which came first or, or second. I was a Boy Scout. We had to raise money by doing odd jobs. It was called Odd Job Week. Um, and I raised Odd job week. yeah, I raised like seventy dollars for for the school uh, for the scout hall, and I did that by washing cars and and um, and pulling weeds out of driveways and all that sort of stuff. And I think there was something around that time of like becoming aware of adding value for money, doing something in exchange for money, and selling stuff and all of that. And yeah, I think I, I had the bug, and there was this mm. moment at my garage sale where this guy wanted to haggle with me on the on the microwave. Uh, which I remember quite vividly, and I was only ten at the time. But he he said, can, right there. he said, can I speak you? Can I speak to your dad? And my dad came out and he said, um, don't negotiate with me. It's not my business. It's my son's. <laughs> it's my son's. I business. love it. Throwing you to the fire. Yeah, and he said, it's yeah. my son's business. You'll have to haggle with him. And then he turned away and walked off. And here I am with this grown adult, and now he's like, oh, okay. Well, how much for the? <laughs> And it was just this moment of feeling important and feeling uh, special. Empowered. It was really cool. Good on your dad. Good good on your dad for empowering you and giving you, you know, the opportunity there. So let's flip that around and and you you have children, correct? I do. And how do you empower them with the entrepreneurial spirit? There's there's lots of little things that we do. Um and just so, some of the phraseology. So mistakes are part of learning is like something you'll hear around our house. Um, and you know the idea that the fun part is building it, not having it. So you would know with having kids that they build stuff that gets broken all the time, whether it be blocks or Legos, Legos. or paper mache things and all this sort of stuff. So one of the things we talk about is the fun part's building it, not having it. So when one of them crushes something and it gets destroyed, we always say the fun part's building it, not having it and you get to rebuild it. And it's this idea that you build it for the fun of building it, not for the fun of having it. You, you're not trying to hold on or preserve it. You're trying no. to create something. Um, right. And then the other thing I love saying to my kids is life's not fair. And if it was, you wouldn't nope. be. <laughs> I, don't say, I don't say the second part, but as they get older, I'll say if it was fair, you'd be worse off, not better off. Um, and I, you know, there's a lot of parents that really focus on this idea of fairness and they're like, oh, you know, yeah. it's, you know, little kids, what they're like, they're like, oh, it's not fair. Ethan got an ice cream and I didn't get an ice cream. Right. And it's like, well, life's not fair. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really clear about this with my kids. I'm like, yep. Uh, I, I was playing favorites with Ethan today because he went to the park with me and we bought an ice cream when we we're there and life's not fair. Sometimes you miss out you on the ice cream. You have to teach cream. him. Yeah. Because you have to you have to prepare you have to prepare them for, for for real life and accountability too and it's fascinating I'm a, I'm you know deeply connected with Gary Vaynerchuk and he said something at his conference a couple of weeks ago that really kind of resonated with me as far as raising children it's this idea of 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 accountability yeah right? it, it, it's 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 a, it's accountability and I think that's missing a lot and part you know the whole idea of you know giving every kid a seventh place participation trophy that's bullshit in my mind I think kids have to learn how to lose. Yeah. Gracefully. It's yep. hard. Uh, the other one too is we talk about like emotions like clouds, right? They come and go. Uh, so I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. And I say, that's okay. Emotions are like clouds. They come and go. 
whereas a lot of parents are teaching their kids that emotions are really important, that you have to you know, pay close attention to how you feel. And it's like, no, no, emotions are like clouds. They come and go. Uh, so we, 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 you know, so I change things up a bit. We also do practical stuff. Like I, I get them to make a phone call and book something in. I get them to... Um, uh, write letters to people. I get them to uh, sell stuff. Uh, I get them I like to that. save money and put money in a money jar. And um, and if they want a particular toy, they put they put money towards it. Yeah, I mean it's kind of funny too. My daughter, my daughter's just turning ten, and now we're on this thing where if she wants to buy something specifically on Amazon, I go, "That's okay. It's your you." She has money. She has all these money from birthday parties, and I go, "Okay, well that's what it costs. I'm going to buy it, but I want you to go to your room immediately after and get me the cash." And put yeah. it in my hand. Yeah, yeah, I've done yeah, that. I mean, as that's well. what, I'm not just buying you shit for free. Like that's yeah. not that's not the way that's not the way this works. I want to circle back to you know I love talking to folks who have written multiple books, and the cool part about writing books is the journey for the author and what they learn about themselves. So I'd love if you could share a little bit of insight on you know that journey of what you learned about yourself from a process standpoint, how you operate. You know, especially going from the first book to the fourth book. Yeah, so um, I love writing books. I I tend to have dominant ideas that are bubbling around in my head. And until such time as I write the book, those ideas, they just kind of, they're, they're there and they're ever present and I'm thinking about them. And then as soon as I write the book, it's almost like those ideas now live in a safe place and I can free up my head to have better ideas, new ideas. Um, the writing process for me is a process of refining an idea into something actionable. It's about it's about taking something that is directionally correct and actually putting it a strategy around it and 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 finding the right analogies, the right stories, the right data, the right research that validates those ideas. And um, I, you know, I'm a big believer the book that changes your life is the one that you write, not one you read because it forces you to clarify your thinking. It puts it into a scalable format. It helps build credibility and community. Uh, and for, for all those reasons, I just love writing. I love writing books. And, um, you know, it's just one of the things I've always enjoyed and prioritized. And I encourage everyone to do it. It's great. It's cathartic. I mean, I wrote my, it's not a book by any means. I mean, I wrote last summer, I wrote a, a playbook, which was how I manage and build this show and use it for business generation in a B2B way. And it was the first thing I really wrote long form. And I, it also brought me back to, I used to love writing when I was younger. The, the act of writing, editing, reformatting, and it's creative and you get locked into this flow state. And and I also try to be very conscious of taking myself out of my own head into the reader's head. How is the reader experiencing this and not just me just talking? And that was that was pretty interesting too. And I wanna um, rewind to a book that you wrote early on, Becoming a Key Person of Influence, which mm. is, is fantastic. And I, I admit, I did not read the whole thing, but I went through some of the notes on it. and. As the internet has begun to mature and there's this new web three generation that's going to only pull us further into the digital world, you know, what are some of the things that you would update 10 years later in that book? So, do you know, the, the core of the strategy seems to have gotten stronger and stronger. If anything, when I wrote the book, it was a nice to have and it was something that it was emerging as a trend that you should uh, position yourself as a key person within a community and within a particular niche. Um, and um, as I as the years have gone on, because I wrote that book in 2010, so you know quite a while ago, 12 years, uh, yeah, 12 years ago. And 
as the time has gone on, it's become more, people are seeing that book as more and more essential. In fact, bigger and bigger influencers are, t- are tapping into that book and contacting and, and talking about it. And they're saying that this is not a nice to have, this is a must have. If you want to be big digitally, if you want to you know, build a community on Web3, if you want to you know, do a DAO or, a, um, or an NFT project or any of those types of things, you have to be seen as the type of person who can pull that together. You have to be seen as a trusted right. source of information, um, that personal brand. And also, as we're seeing markets going up and down and wildly high and low, people, wildly. people go and seek out they go and seek out the person who is a sensible voice in the industry who's got a bit of a brand. And mm-hmm. um, as you say, you've worked with Gary Vaynerchuk. He was one of the very early people to really, really double down on the idea of building personal brand. And he, he built an incredible brand himself. And you see behind the scenes what it's like when someone like Gary drops an opportunity boom, it's everywhere. When he wants something, he just kind of like says, I'm looking for this. Throws it out there. And then mm-hmm. boom, everything comes. comes. So if he wants to recruit, you know, he can he can have 500 applicants that afternoon. He um, did it last week. He put out a note that they were recruiting and the, the open up the, flood, the floodgates. Exactly. Yeah. And people are like saying stuff like, I'm willing to work for free or I'm willing to do this or, you know, I'll it's move insanity. to the, yeah, it's Yeah. It's, so the personal brand really is such an incredible asset rain rain hail or shine it's up down sideways it's a but, great asset but it, it's interesting too and and to get out you know get on or off my soapbox at some point i think the personal brand could be a double-edged sword for some people who are not guided in the right direction to find their own voice who feel like they may have to be something that they're not to attract a certain type of people and it can be a double-edged sword when it's not done right or if they're if they're being guided or looking to folks who are not doing it in a genuine way and i think that's something you have to be very mindful of right I think I think there's two strategies. One is to be really authentic and and be genuine and 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 share absolutely everything that's going on in your life, and that's kind of more the celebrity influencer style uh, approach, which Gary's very much an advocate of. There's also a style which is to actually be very focused on a topic and just say, you know, this is the topic that I talk about, and I don't really need to talk about my gym routine or my breakfast or my relationship or my family. Uh, I'm just going to be become a real thought leader and expert on that topic. And I actually, I personally, I'm agnostic on that. I think you can go either way, and I think that if you depends don't depends on your purpose. Yeah, if you don't feel comfortable, right? like what the goal is. Yeah, you, if you don't feel comfortable with all, you know, opening the the, the kimono to the whole world, then um, then fine. I, I actually don't think you have to. I think you can be a key person of influence with five to 50,000 followers in your industry. Uh, and that that could actually keep you extremely well positioned for the next five to 10 years. And it's interesting you say this. I, I've kind of crafted an organic approach where the show has enabled me to interview incredible folks like yourself, experts deep within my niche, which is recruiting, talent, career journeys. And two things happen. One, I shine a light on those folks and I showcase their expertise, and that light reflects back on me, Dan. And it positions totally, me as a thought because totally. I'm able to share my point of view on their thoughts and putting it out there to the world, and I'm seeing the results of it. I'm getting booked for public speaking gigs. I'm traveling to the UK in a couple of weeks, and I'm positioning myself as a thought leader, which does a couple things. One, it attracts new clients. Yep. This is out, because not many recruiters are putting themselves out there. That's my per- professional branding. And the second, it gives credibility for candidates as well when I reach out to them. Yeah. And I'm not some, you know, schnook on the corner for there. Um, I want I want to go back to something and uh, and and it, it was really fascinating to me because I I have Posner's three P's, but you have Dan's five P's <laughs> uh, for your framework, which are pitching, publication, products, profile, and partnerships. Mine is patient, polite, persistence. Those are my three. <laughs> I like yours. Um, 
I, I'd love if you could elaborate a little bit and share, you know, a, a brief little br- breakdown on, on Dan's five Ps. Yeah, so very quickly, to become a key person of influence, the, the backstory is that I spent a lot of time with very famous people who who take the stage and who commercialize it very successfully. People, right, you built a big business on that. Your yeah, first exactly. And also, I've, st- I've, I've, I've also spoken on stage with Gary and I've spoken on stage with uh, like um, Richard Branson and Bill Clinton and, you know, all, uh, a lot of the dragons, a lot of the um, sharks from mm-hmm. Shark Tanks. So I was spending a lot of time with those types of people in my first business from uh, around 2000 to 2010. Um, and I noticed that they all followed the same formula. Uh, so the five P's is essentially pitching is the ability to enroll people with what they say, the ability to get people excited about an idea. And what I noticed is that they had the same pitch over and over and over and over again. And they'd be on stage, they'd be on radio, they'd be on television, and they'd be pitching this idea. And without you knowing it, they'd be enrolling you in a particular thing that they were up to in the world. And they knew how to pitch it powerfully. They knew how to get people excited through through just speaking. Uh, the second one is publishing. All of them had written a book. All of them were publishing content. All of them were putting articles, blogs, posts uh, out there. Right. Podcasts is also publishing. So publishing and publication. Uh, the the third one is interesting. So this is productization. So mm-hmm. I I noted the way I noticed it was like the Eiffel Tower in Paris. The Eiffel Tower doesn't actually make a lot of money. People um, might spend five euros to go up to the viewing deck. It's not that expensive itself. Right? But itself isn't. But the cafes and the restaurants sitting around mm. it, the art galleries that are around it, the hotels that are around it, they're insanely it's expensive, right? So it's the beacon. So what I noticed with the key people of influence is rarely did they sell their time. They didn't do like paid coaching. Sometimes they did, but they weren't ever trying to sell their time. Selling their time was something that might have happened just accidentally because they're well known. But the real money was being made through product and service ecosystem that sat around them. So this was the idea of creating scalable products and services that that sell as if by magic, just by having you there and having you around. Um, so building a product ecosystem was number three. Number four is raising profile. So having followers, uh, having awards, um, uh, speaking at live events. Uh, being on other people's platforms, third-party platforms. And then number five is joint ventures and partnerships. And this was a big moneymaker. I noticed that there's this attitude that key people of influence have, which is if the resource exists somewhere on the planet, I can have a conversation about how it gets used. So for example, an extreme example is that when Tom Cruise wants to make a film about flying jet planes, he just picks up the phone and talks to the Navy and says, hey guys, can we borrow some jets? And it's like, yeah, we'll partner with you on that because it's good for us and it's good for you. It's good PR. Um, right? So as an extreme example, if a jet exists somewhere in the world, you could talk about how it gets used. Um, but at a more practical level, rather than trying to save up money to grow your business, you could partner with someone who's got money. Uh, rather than try to get famous, partner with someone who's already famous. Rather than trying to get a PhD or an MBA, partner with someone who's already got a PhD or an MBA. So Leverage. Yeah, mm-hmm. just exactly. So doing, doing that. So those are the five Ps for becoming a key person of influence that are talked about in the book. The podcast is brought to you in partnership with Venturi, the recruitment operating system, the all-in-one tech platform purposely built for recruitment and staffing to unify your front, middle, and back office operations. Venturi is designed by recruiters for recruiters. Both the company and the platform are the unique creations of successful recruiters who sold their business, saw a need for a better recruitment tech, and made it happen. And if you're looking to upgrade your recruitment tech and give your recruiters a new modern operating system, visit 
vincere.io slash podcast. That's V-I-N-C-E-R-E dot I-O backslash P-O-Z-C-A-S-T for an exclusive offer. Thanks. So let's discuss uh, your latest venture, which is Score App. And it, it seems like it's a type of service that's birthed out of a need, which is, call me crazy, it seems like the right idea to build something. But let's talk about that need and let's talk about the product a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you're, you're going to relate to this because in 2010 to 2014, I was traveling around the world speaking on stages and running conferences myself. And I was a, I had no kids and I was, I was single for a lot of it. And I love. So, mean, so meaning, you had, meaning you had a good time. I was a bachelor, and it didn't ah, travel in the world before travel, COVID, and life was carefree. Life was carefree. I had a, I had one suitcase full of clothes and one suitcase for my office stuff, and I, I was in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, London uh, as my main places, them. and I would kind of bounce between London, Singapore, Sydney, and and then around those places. I would often go to Bali and. I was involved in lots of conferences on that on that circuit and a bit of Dubai, uh, a bit of Thailand, all that sort of stuff. So I'm like bouncing between all these places, having a great time. Anyway, I, I meet my now wife, we get pregnant, we have kids, and I'm sitting there thinking, I can't live like this anymore. Um, and this is how my business grows. This is like live events, big events is how I do things. So I was looking for something to replace the engine room of my sales and marketing. And I launched this thing called an online scorecard. And the online scorecard was called, uh, the first one was called the Key Person of Influence Scorecard. And I invited people to go online, ask questions, uh, answer some questions, 40 questions, and then it gives them an automatically generated report. And they can then, as a result of seeing how they score on the five Ps, they can decide whether they want to work with my team to improve mm-hmm. uh, their score. So this worked incredibly well. 90,000 people ended up taking the scorecard and $10 million wow. came in. And it was just this incredible like, wow, I don't need to speak anymore. I don't have to go traveling around. I can literally people read the book and then they take the scorecard and then we make a sale. And it was just this like revelation that I'd spent 10 years speaking and actually the scorecard just uh, changes everything. Uh, so that was incredible. Um, so that's how I used it myself. Fast forward to 2019, uh, all my clients are saying, can I get a scorecard too? I want one like what you've done. I want to do a bit of a personality test or a questionnaire or survey. I want to do a live report. Um, and we started building them on WordPress and I had a team building mm-hmm. them. We were charging about eight or $9,000 to, to build these things. And we did about a dozen of them across uh, a wide range of industries. We had uh, a DJ scorecard, right. we had a, um, a learning and development corporate scorecard. And suddenly I'm seeing these things absolutely work across industries, uh, corporate, consumer, B2B, executives are taking these. I thought, this is great, like this, people are loving this. So we built the platform, I raised money, we built, built a platform and we launched uh, ScoreApp, which is a marketing platform for generating leads using scorecards or quizzes or surveys, that sort of thing. Um, we make it super easy to have a beautiful landing page, a questionnaire, and a results page, a dynamic PDF report, and then to collate all those leads and then harness the use of that data. So all built into one thing. What do you, what do you think that human kind of need? I mean, scorecards, people are very gamification, number oh, driven. Man. Let's talk about the psychology behind that for a little oh, bit. Oh, it's it runs deep. It's really yeah. deep. Yeah. It's like literally if you got if you got two guys on an island and they're yeah. trying to survive 
they're going to start scoring stuff. They're going to sit there and, and like say, how many, how much wood did you chop? I chopped more wood than you. I did this. Or are we doing the right things? There's this human desire to score, measure, and improve mm-hmm. everything, right? We, Always. I mean, and, and think about it a different way. If we took the score, the scoreboard, the measurement tools away from most sports, would anyone watch them? Like, would anyone watch it if you didn't know what the score was, if you didn't know, uh, you know? <laughs> no, so, there has to be a winner. Yeah. So humans just love to score, measure, and improve. On top of that, they love to know whether they're on track or off track. And that's a huge desire. That's, they yeah. They don't want to waste time. Self-improvement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this idea that you might be, this the idea that you might be busy walking in the wrong direction, nobody wants that. So, for example, we have scorecards like, are you ready to run a marathon? Take the scorecard to make sure that you're training effectively. I get a zero. I get a yeah. big fat zero on that <laughs> yeah, one. I'll tell you right now. Me too. No. Yeah, no score. No need required. to give me that test. I'm not going to take it. It'll be a <laughs> negative. There'll be a negative score on that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you know, um, are you are you an entrepreneurial? Uh, are you ready to scale your business? Are you ready to be a, a, a good parent? Right. All of these things. So it's like. The idea is, you know, are you optimized? Are you doing the right things? Are you following best practices? Um, people love to check in to see if they can do that stuff. So, now I was just about to say, I mean, you're building this app, but it's built on like lots, many years of experience. But even at this stage in your life and career as an entrepreneur, what mistakes did you make early on building this app? Uh, well, when we built it, um, do you know? I don't want to sound cocky, but we've launched it. 2,000 clients have signed up and everyone's loving it at the moment. Um, I'm trying mm-hmm. to think about the big mistake we made. You know, we did five- well, Or maybe, wait, 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 let me rephrase that. Maybe a yeah. missed opportunity early on. Yeah. I did five years of development. Yeah. I did five years of development on it, on my own business before we even attempted to create a platform. Mm-hmm. So there was five years of optimizing it for myself before creating a platform around it. So there's huge amount, like countless mistakes that we made, um, you know, and then there's, then what we've done is we've rolled all of those learnings into the platform. So there's certain ways to structure a landing page that gets higher conversion than Mm -hmm. others. There's certain questions that you want to ask that you don't want to ask. You also don't want to make the thing too long or too short. You don't want to have a a scorecard that's a hundred questions. I mean, the UI and UX of it is what's really at the crux. Yeah, and we we do a lot of training and guidance with our clients to make sure that they implement this strategy properly, because uh, we want them to succeed. We want them to have a ready, a steady stream of warm leads, so that they um, uh, we do it. And we get a lot of recruiters, right? A lot of people, a lot of recruiters are using it to find companies. Are you ready to scale your team? Uh, are you? Right. Do you have a work from home culture? Uh, is your company uh, got a strong employer brand? Um, All those flags that say, hey, listen, they're ripe for for business development. Yes, yes. Exactly. So it's interesting. I mean, I I can only imagine the sheer amount of data that you're collecting with these apps. I mean, where do you you see, you know, I mean, data is everything. Data is a commodity. Data is more valuable than obviously every crypto these days. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, where do you see the big shift in in trends in data going in the next few years? So it's the big shift. It's it's the really big shift. Here's, Here's the thinking. Uh, the U.S. presidential election. I'm going to go on a tangent, but I'll bring it back. Sure. Uh, the U.S. presidential election it. is like the Formula One of marketing, right? It basically it's the most highly contested, big budget, winner take all. It's the biggest competition in the world, and it's the biggest marketing competition in the world. Uh, every four years, basically, it's the most aggressively fought 
campaign. So anything that is going on within the context of a US presidential election, you should pay attention to that. It's separate to politics, and I'm not talking politically, I'm just talking about technology and trends. And Marketing and technology, yep. Yeah, so for I'll give you some examples. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, he did the fireside chat about 100 years ago. It was a national radio campaign, and his competitor was doing print newspapers, and he was doing national radio, and that's what won the campaign. And at that moment, radio became more powerful than newspaper. And then in 1963, JFK, he did a, a live televised uh, TV debate with Nixon, and he mm-hmm. won the debate on television. And people who listened on radio thought Nixon was better, but people who watched on television thought JFK was stronger. He was polished. He looked great. He he was presentable. Exactly. He looked presidential. And then that was the moment that TV became more powerful than radio. And then fast forward to Obama 08. Obama focused heavily on social media. He did a complete social media campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, and he won. And that was the moment that social media became more powerful than traditional media. So we can see that these trends, they start to basically move the needle as to what's the big trend. Now, in 2016, you've got Trump uh, and you've got Brexit. And it emerged that there was this one agency behind those two campaigns called Cambridge Analytica. Now, mind yep. you, I want people to not be political about this, right? It's not political. It's technological. Yeah, it's just fact. It's called right? fact and tech. Exactly. So Cambridge Analytica, they did this thing where they ran quizzes on Facebook and they got people to answer about 10 questions. Those 10 questions allowed people, uh, allowed their algorithms to figure out whether uh, you were open, conscientious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was all they these- profile based on the questions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The they, pers- mm-hmm. Personality type. Based on that data, they then created ad sets that were right for that person. So let's say they figure out that you're the type of person who cares about education. They're going to give you education-related ads. If they figure out you're caring about healthcare, then they're gonna go healthcare related ads. So they really bombarded people with personalization. Personalization was the key that by asking a little bit of questions, they could figure you out and then they could deliver a personalized campaign to you. Now that, regardless of politics, I can't stress this enough, that is really what marketers need to be thinking about, the idea that you wanna collect data and deliver personalization. And that massively um, uh, increases the campaign effectiveness. You know, people, respond hugely when they feel that they've answered questions and gotten something customized in return. So this is going to be the big shift. 2020s is all about Mm -hmm. personalization. It's all about data. And it's all about data from the perspective of really, truly getting to know people, not data from the perspective of like name, email, or any of that sort of stuff. It's all about harnessing that power of data to to be able to have an intimate connection or, or, or a deep connection with someone. That's fantastic. I certainly appreciate that perspective. So, looking forward as a as a businessman, as a technologist, I mean, what, what what's exciting you these days? I mean, even when we look at Web three, I and mean, we look at decentralization, we look at blockchain. You know, what what about that from a from a practical standpoint? You know, gets your juices flowing. Well, two questions. Number one, what what gets my juices flowing, and number two, about blockchain and and Web three. So. What gets my juices flying is at the moment, we have this incredible moment in history where the baby boomers are retiring and some of the world's most incredible businesses have to change hands. And when I say incredible businesses, I mean, there are plenty of family businesses doing $10 million a year and the owner of that business has no one to give it to, right? And someone's gonna have to buy it. There's gonna have to be a refinancing of it. Um, There's this massive shift in the business landscape where there's this uh, huge amount of traditional businesses 
you know, elevator repair businesses and like, uh, you know, car repair businesses and air conditioning related businesses, like boring businesses that mm-hmm. that do millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of value creation in the economy. And the owners right now are literally shutting them down or passing them on cheaply. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge transfer of wealth that's happening right now. And I'm really fascinated by this transfer of wealth. There's a big psychology uh, gap between pre-retirement and post-retirement. Pre-retirement is all about investing for the future. Post-retirement is all about uh, yield seeking. And um, and there's a big difference in psychology. So um, I'm, I'm very fascinated by that. I, I think that transfer of wealth is one of the greatest transfers of wealth that that um, that could possibly, uh, you know, it's an incredible, to watch. incredible moment. Uh, when it comes to Web3, uh, so obviously uh, with any new technology, the, the forest fires uh, clear out the stuff that was noise and nonsense. And, you know, so it's a- it's uh, I a- say that all the time. I'm literally just saying that right now about the big NFT bubble that's happening. I said the forest fire is clearing out all the dead wood. Yeah. And and it's, it's natural that in a highly innovative environment, you're going to create innovation that's not going to, you know, it's an innovation looking for a purpose and it doesn't have one. And it's, you know, it's a good idea in theory, but it hasn't found any market or any use case. So these things happen when you're in an innovative environment and essentially these crashes and corrections, they really go and just cut back to what's valuable, what's useful, what's interesting. Um, I, I'm really, from a Web3 perspective, I'm really interested in things like um, uh, business equity. How, how do you, um, business equity as in the ownership of businesses. And you know, currently we have a pretty archaic system that unless you're a publicly listed company, the there's a very unsophisticated handling of the shares and the dividends and the record keeping and the governance process and i'm really a big fan of what web3 could do for business governance and the DAOs. i mean watching DAOs. it's a it's a democracy i mean the DAO is a decentralized organization i mean by nature of it is it's a it's the shareholders have a right to to vote yeah it's a governance process it's a great governance process and it's kind of like it almost applies um a publicly listed company level of governance to a tiny little organization or a t- mm-hmm. tiny community and makes it easier makes it you know makes it easy to keep in touch with um you know so the thing about web3 and decentralization is centralization is really powerful and really cheap and it's a it's in most cases most most records should be centralized with a backup right so if you think about most things you should probably have a central record that is the main place and then a backup that gets saved in case there's an emergency. And that would be that would be useful for most cases, 90% of things, they don't need decentralization. Decentralization is incredibly expensive. You're paying for a layer of complexity, which in most cases is just overkill for most things. But what we're looking at here is we're looking at, well, where is it not overkill? Where is it worth paying for decentralization? Where is it worth the energy uh, and effort to do it? And what I'm interested in is I feel like a lot of the Web3 stuff is basically forcing a solution into an environment that doesn't need that solution. But people are not, but and then people say, "Oh, well, it's pointless." But then you actually find examples of where, wait a second, this does warrant a Web three solution. Right. So, so what you're saying is that like we're all getting excited about this, but it's not all or nothing. It doesn't have to be all decentralized. I mean, I personally think I can't wait to see you know mortgages and certain you know legal pieces you know available on the blockchain. 
parts of recruiting, you know, verification, moving the resume and your job history over to the blockchain where it can be verified and shared. But then yeah. there's some things that maybe it makes sense. And I think we have to be open to it. So Dan, let's let's bring it home here. And again, this show for anyone new, any new audience here, this show is my masterclass. It's my own personal masterclass where I get to interview and have 45 minute conversations with amazing folks like Daniel here. And, you know, I love to ask these questions. What, when, when people throw around the word authentic, it, it could, you know, what, what does authentic mean to you? Because I'm getting a real true sense of authenticity from you, Dan. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know what the word authentic really means to be, to be fair. Um, and the reason I don't understand this word enough, I struggle with I struggle with the 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 idea of authenticity because as a business leader with a hundred plus employees and um, and all of that sometimes I feel like I have to be inauthentic and what I mean by that is that I might be having a day where I just don't feel it and I can't really just say I don't feel it today I've got to put my game face on and I've got to deliver what I said I'd deliver that day yeah people depend on me right um, as a parent mm -hmm. people depend on me as a as a boss or an entrepreneur with a company people depend on me um, so if I hold myself to the standard of authenticity um, the short my short term authenticity the day the day to day authenticity is sometimes I. Sometimes when I'm talking about the five P's of key person of influence and it's been 12 years, I go, oh, I'm sick of explaining the five P's. I, I'm just, I'm not interested in that. In the same way, Metallica is probably sick of playing Nothing Else Matters and uh, and, and Coldplay is yep. sick of Coldplay songs and <laughs> Dolly Parton's probably sick of singing exactly. 9 to 5. Uh, but, but if they're yeah, money makers right? and they do what they got to do to support the family. Yeah, and also... You do what you do because the person listening is hearing it for the first time and they're connecting with it for the first time. And it's actually, it's all about them, not me. It's like, it's about, this is this is the value creation. The value creation is happening in their world, not in my world. So I've got to create the value for them. So for me, I struggle with this idea that I've got to be authentic because my long-term authenticity is to create lasting value. My long-term authenticity is to develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make positive impact in the world. But my short-term authenticity is like sometimes I just want to throw a tantrum and I, I hold myself back from throwing a tantrum. Keep it real, man. That's just keep it. And it's it's so interesting. And I love that answer because I, I receive, you know, I ask that question a lot, and a lot of times the answer is something around the keeping it real, being your true self. But this is the first time I've asked somebody and you've actually broken it down. We're like, listen, I really don't know what it means because sometimes I'm not. And and I think that's honesty. I think to be able to say, you know what? There are times when I'm inauthentic because either I have to be for a business reason or maybe that's one of my character personality faults. Mm. And let's just be open and, and be open about it. I think, let's be real about it. No one is 100% authentic all the time. <laughs> my just, toddlers are. My, my three-year-old. My four-year-old. No, you're right. You're right. You, I, I stand corrected. My four-year-old is as authentic as it gets here. So, Dan, <laughs> let's bring it home here. Um, what is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every single day? Uh, so, at a particular turning point in my business, uh, I got slapped in the face around the value that I was creating. And a, a very respected mentor of mine said to me, uh, you're not creating an asset. There's a difference between busy, being busy and being productive. There's a difference between working and creating something. And he said, you're working a lot, but you're not creating a lot. And you're busy, but you're not productive. And um, he said, you need to be creating assets, right? So he said, the the idea is, is that assets are lasting value and digital assets are the most important because they are they transcend time, space, and decay. 
so essentially you create a digital asset and it can be available 10 years from now, it can be available all over the world and it can be available to a billion people. So time, space and decay is eradicated with the digital asset. And essentially I had this, This uh, he, he said income follows assets. If you want more income, you need more assets. He also said scale and, um, and fun and uh, impact follow assets. So the 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 analogy that he talked about was like you could spend 16 hours a day driving uber and that's not the same as spending 16 hours a day developing a SaaS product that, that you know that a lot of people use because one person is working one person's creating something um, so that idea of it's not about work it's about creation um, that has been a, a powerful piece of advice that I, I implement and and I'm disciplined on Tremendous. Thank you for sharing that one. I think it's a real, real big lesson on that one. And last but not least, Dan, you look back at your life and listen, it's not always been sunshine and rainbows. And there's been those times personally and professionally where you've really had to dig down deep inside and, you know, harness that inner tenacity to pull you up and forward. And in the same breath, you sit here with gratitude, happy for the life that you build, your beautiful children, your family, the experiences that you have. What keeps you focused? What is your compass? Daniel Presley, what is your North Star in life? Uh, my North Star is this idea that we're living through extraordinary times and I want to make the most of these times that we're in. Um, I really, truly, honestly believe that this particular moment in history is a, a magnificent and also a make or break moment for society and humanity. Um, it's the furthest humanity's ever gotten to. It's the further we've ever. It's the furthest we've ever been. We're we're dangerously close to collapsing in some ways. We're dangerously close to tipping the balance in the wrong direction. Um, but also, we have this incredible opportunity in this moment uh, to 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 do incredible things. I think I think back to the fact that for me to be here, for me to be on this planet. Uh, literally thousands of generations had to have met each other, procreated, survived, uh, avoided you know disease and famine and sickness and and at what like goodness knows what went through my family's history for me to be here, and I feel this strong sense that I owe it to all of that sacrifice to do something with this magic moment, to do something with the times that we're in. So that's a big part of my north star. And I also have a more focused version, which is that my purpose is to develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make positive impact in the world through business. Um, so that's that's very much my my business focus. I love it. Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I certainly appreciate you hanging with me one moment. And everyone, please visit, uh, check out ScoreApp over at scoreapp.com, free trial. You can check it all out. But Dan, where can folks find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more? Yeah, connect with me on Instagram or Twitter um, or LinkedIn, whichever you prefer. Uh, check out the books on Amazon, um, Key Person of Influence, uh, Oversubscribe. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I'd, I'd love it if people send me a message. Let me know how you're going. Let me know how uh, whether any of these ideas in this podcast stood out. Um, I'd absolutely love it if you dropped me a little DM or something like that and, uh, and, and just let me know whether the idea landed for you. Amazing. And we're going to link everything up. We'll link up his books. We'll put all these hyperlinks in there. And definitely check out his Twitter. Twitter is fantastic. I'm a big fan of Dan uh, on Twitter. There. I want to thank you so much for joining me and everyone listening at home. This has been a fantastic episode, full, chock full of, knowledge, wisdom, learnings, and key takeaways. Remember, sharing means caring. And if you love this episode, please send it to one of your friends and leave a review, a rating. It goes a long way. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, take care of each other, look out for one another, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Take care, everybody. 
wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.